kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday. It's a little after. It's actually it's two minutes after six o'clock, and it's another edition of Auntie Nanny. With me tonight is my beautiful and talented friend, the, the Miss Jeannie K. How are you this evening? Hi, Jan. Hi. I, I threw you off. I didn't call you bubbly and vivacious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> And the best producer money can't buy, which is good because still not paying him. Barry, how are you this evening, Barry? Great. Microsoft's leaving us alone. I know. It's very strange. It's almost like it likes the subject matter for the show or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, I'm assuming everybody heard that Glenn Fry died. Uh, And then, of course, you know, we lost Alan Rickman this week. God, I feel like... I feel like I'm Deadpool. <laughs> uh, I know, and I said this a little while ago, and everybody listening to this replay didn't get to hear me say it, but he said there's a reason all these people are dying. And Barry made mention that you know, all the great rockers are dying. I'm like, yes, that's because the 70s were a long fucking time ago. Yeah. Music is kind of, you know, I mean, like the whole 80s thing, you know, I mean, I, I, I wow, I apologize for being a teenager in the 80s. Yeah. Hey, there's, there's nothing wrong with Adam and the Ants. I know. I know that Anna, Cindy Lauper, and Boy George to offset that very. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was some great music in the eighties. Um, Susie and the Banshees. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, the New Romantics—they were kind of great. And, and so golf there was a- took off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a lot of stuff in the 80s that was really great to listen to. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just have this feeling that all the really talented musicians are going to go. And Bieber is just going to be freaking eternal. He's just going to be like some sort of revenant. There is precedent because Cliff Richard is still going. <laughs> and looks much the same as he used to. Which is yeah, scary. Well, Keith Richards, I think is also somebody who looks like he's just going to he, he just he's I turned himself he into is, jerky I, th- I think he is actually dead 
It's just <laughs> Death's too scared to show up and get him. <laughs> Quite possibly. He's not looking too sparkly. But, um... But that, um, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Um, that's what scrambled eggs look like. <laughs> I don't know. He kind of looks like beef jerky to me. He, he's petrified. Yeah, he's <laughs> petrified. <laughs> I kind of think, yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, that he, he might actually be petrified, which is horrific. But there you go. Hey, people can live through mummification, I guess. Look at Keith Richards. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I'm just happy we have Jeannie back. It's awesome. Uh the guy would say, that's some funny shit right there. <laughs> okay. Um, so we had our giggles, and now now it's time for the news. I, I don't even... I don't even... I think I'm going to start with Ebola, which is all the way down at the very bottom of the show notes. Yeah, hmm? that's... That's a, always a wonderful topic to get going to. <laughs> it's, it's actually one of the better ones. You don't really want me to start with water, do you? Because I have to read that whole Michael Burry thing. Yeah, no. But, yeah. Go with Ebola. Go with Ebola. Ebola, <laughs> the friendly subject. <laughs> Ebola, a little bit of light, happy reading. <laughs> Just to this off. Well, we will start with the light, easy topic of the Ebola crisis. So, yeah, which is fantastic. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my notes on this word, do the words revisit the case definition scare the fuck out of anyone else? Sierra Leone puts more than 100 people into quarantine after new Ebola death. Maria Mar- Maritu Jaloa was nursed by members of a household of 22 people before being treated as an outpatient at a local hospital. A woman who died of Ebola this week in Sierra Leone may have exposed at least 27 others to the disease, an aid agency report claims, raising the risk of more cases just as the epidemic appeared to be ending. Sierra Leone's government on Saturday urged the public not to panic as it announced more than 100 people had been quarantined just as the country seemed to have overcome the epidemic. The World Health Organization, on their ball as fucking usual, had declared that all known chains of transmission had been stopped in West Africa the day before this came to light, meaning the area was officially free of the virus after a two-year epidemic that killed more than 11,300 people. The World Health Organization warned of potential flare-ups as survivors can carry the virus for months. The latest case is particularly worrying because the authorities failed to follow basic health protocols, according to the report compiled by a humanitarian aid agency and released on Friday. Health officials in Freetown said they had placed a total of 109 people who had been in contact with the student before her death in isolation. Of those, 28 were considered high risk, and three contacts had yet to be located. Ishmael Tarawali, the national coordinator of the Office of National Security, said at a press conference. We are worried and concerned about this new development, but call on the general public not to panic, and more than ever before, all Sierra Leoneans must work together to prevent further infection, he said. The victim, Maria Tujiola, <clears throat> began showing symptoms at the start of January after traveling to a town near the border in Guinea in late December. Sierra Leone's northern border was the area of the country's last year, Ebola hotspots, before it was declared free of the virus on 7 November and contacting tracing was sometimes hampered by access problems. By the time Jola returned to her parents' home east of the capital of Freetown, she had diarrhea and was vomiting, the report said. Jola was 
nourished by members of a household of 22 people. At a local hospital, a health worker took a blood sample but did not wear protective clothing. It was not immediately clear whether the sample was tested for Ebola. She was treated as an outpatient and returned home where she died four days later. A swab test following Jola's death tested positive for Ebola. The woman who died in northern Meg- Mangupa, yeah, I'm butchering this, I'm sorry, township in the district of Tokoli, but Tawali said active case investigations were ongoing in all the districts where the victim was known to have recently traveled. Those include the districts of Cambria, Port Loco, Bambali, and Freetown. The source of infection and route of transmission is being investigated, and the government urges all Sierra Leoneans to continue to be vigilant. The country's chief medical officer, Dr. Brima Kargbo, said that when the woman arrived at Magburka Government Hospital, she showed no signs or symptoms that fitted the case definition of Ebola. She had no fever or redness of the eyes, and when she was examined at the outpatient ward, what she declared was dizziness, he said. We're now going to revisit the Ebola case definition. Nice. They're going to revisit. In an area that had a huge outbreak where they should be testing automatically anyone who shows up (laughs) that it's not an obvious physical accident. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm just floored by this. Yeah. So she showed no none of the symptoms that we take for granted. Yeah. Not a good thing. In a virus which uh, rapidly mutates, so it could have new symptoms all the time. Yay! Yay way to go, health professionals. Yeah. <laughs> health professionals? These fuckers in the World Health Organization keep saying, oh, we're done with this, and then it keeps popping back up going, uh, excuse me, Margaret Chan, no, we're not. Yeah. It's also so expensive. <laughs> but fuck. <laughs> Dying is cheap. Um, I got news for you, guys. Dying is not cheap. It's cheap for the government. No, not not their government, but, you know, it's cheap for other governments, I guess. So, yeah. Um, Does anybody have a favorite topic out of everything in the show notes? I think the word favorite isn't exactly applicable. (laughs) Does anybody have what you added and see if there's anything in there that's not <laughs> should, should I why don't I read the motherboard story that one's kind of light yeah because the drone story pissed me off uh, yeah well <clears throat> yeah a lot of people pissed me off this week the FBI says it can't find hackers to hire because they all smoke pot <clears throat> oh it- and when you read that title, Jan, was your first thought, well, duh? Well, I mean, who the hell cares? <laughs> if, they, if they don't want to change the regulations, how about you, like, you know, just start hiring some They did. His name was Edward Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> they got, yeah, they got really mad at him. See what happens when you don't hire the stoners? <laughs> Let that be a warning to you, government. Yeah, I mean, if you hire the stoners, they'd never be able to organize fleeing overseas. <laughs> we don't know about that. Okay. Um, okay. It's no secret that the federal government is having a hard time hiring cybersecurity experts, largely because many hackers can find more lucrative deals that don't involve working for the feds. But there's another wrinkle. The FBI now says that its drug testing policies are keeping experts off the payroll. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, FBI Director James Conley said that in order to pursue so-called cybercriminals, the government would pretty much have to let government hackers get stoned because who's going to quit the habit just to work for the FBI? I have to hire a great workforce to compete with those cyber criminals, and some of those kids want to smoke weed on the way to the interview, Comrie said, clearly not pandering to stereotypes. The reason for the FBI's unorthodox approach is that Congress told the agency it needs to hire 2,000 more people this year, and many of those new recruits are going to fight computer-related crime. And as it turns out, those that know computer crime best aren't often the men's warehouse set. The agency regs currently say that lawmen won't hire someone who has smoked marijuana in the last three years. No words on dabs, edibles, and other forms of marijuana consumption. In theory, relaxing hiring restrictions for marijuana does make sense. Earlier this year, the feds admitted that the government isn't a very good isn't very good at internet security, despite the fact that the NSA is basically a Philip K. Dick character's worst nightmare, and that various agencies need to take a long, hard look at hiring practices across the board. We have government hiring practices of the 1940s and 50s in the 21st century. Gregory Wilshausen, director of information at the General Accountability Office, told Information Week. Also, despite the federal government's mixed approach to marijuana enforcement, the majority of Americans believe that it's about time to legalize the drug, which remains classified as a Schedule One drug. In the U.S., which is reserved for the most dangerous and addictive intoxicants known to humanity. Regardless of the federal government's stance, the FBI will apparently consider the issue and is encouraging anyone who has recently got stoned to apply for the job. Yeah, it is worrying that, you know, the way the FBI behave, that the ones they employed weren't stoned. Um, <laughs> also, they're going to have to change their menus at the canteens. <laughs> they're going to need to have lots of pizza and biscuits. Pizza, biscuits, Cheetos. Yeah. Coffee, <laughs> jolt, cola. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing. Right. Yeah, they were really unclear about dabs and edibles and all the other shit. Okay. Um, I would like somebody to tell me what fucking test they're going to run to determine whether you ate it or smoked it. Hair. Hair analysis. Yeah. But it transfers into hair analysis through ingestion too, Jan. Right, yep. but it, it, it shows a different chemical profile. Oh, good God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they can... If you... All right. Here's nifty stuff you might need to know someday. Um, the stuff I found out just while researching background on this. Um, if you get basically those little swab saliva tests... Kind of used to. I don't know if they still do. Only check to see if you had smoked pot in the last, like, eight hours. It can't tell more than that if they just stick a swab in your mouth. Now, if they go for blood or hair analysis, you're kind of fucked. When when I worked in, uh, I managed clubs in Dallas. Right. In the 80s when I was living down there. Mm-hmm. And um, all of our bartenders and uh, waitresses had to have a hair follicle analysis. Um, and... They could tell us everything. Uh, the company I worked for said, we really, really don't give a shit if they're getting high. We just want to know if they're doing high-dollar drugs. So, I mean, they didn't give a shit that you were getting stoned. They wanted to know if you had a money habit, like cocaine. and Cocaine. Yeah. yeah. 
That's what you care about. Huh. Yeah, well, so anyway, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, should I yeah, just I, read? I had a friend who was younger than me, mm-hmm. and he was wanting to join the police force, and he liked partaking of the occasional cannabinoid. And <laughs> he stopped taking it a few days before his physical. And I was like, uh, what are you going to do if they do a hair sample? He's like, what? <laughs> like, do you not know about the hair thing? No, what's that? So I had to explain to him. Right. It's like, unless you shave every hair on your body, um, <laughs> <laughs> they'll know for three years, the last three years worth. Yeah, it's like. And he wanted to be. A... Okay. Yeah, he wanted to be a policeman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stoner is... dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Um, okay, so I'm assuming nobody has a favorite in any of these. So, Porter Ranch. Yeah. Okay. The LA gas leak is scarier than we thought. Since a gas leak erupted outside L.A. on October 23rd, over 83,000 metric tons of methane have escaped into the atmosphere, prompting public officials to evacuate a neighborhood community of Porter Ranch. But as a disturbing new analysis shows, a much broader swath of L.A. is now drowning in methane. The Home Energy Efficiency Team, HEET, is a Cambridge-based nonprofit that's been shedding light on leaky natural gas infrastructure for years. Last week, heat sent Boston University professor Nathan Phillips and Bob Ackley of Gas Safety out to L.A. to measure pollution in the air surrounding Porter Ranch. Armed with a laser gas analyzer that can sniff out airborne methane with parts per billion precision, Phillips and Ackley drove around the L.A. area measuring methane concentrations for a period of five days. Every time their analyzer detected elevated gas levels, it plotted the numbers to Google Earth. The red bars on their maps indicate where they drove, with higher bars corresponding to higher methane concentrations. While California's Air and Resources Board has been keeping tabs on the air quality directly above the ruptured well, heat's analysis went further, revealing elevated methane levels up to 8 miles from the storage site. In a relatively unpolluted area like heat's hometown, Cambridge, methane concentrations will typically fall between 1.85 and 1.95 parts per million. In the region surrounding the Porter Ranch Lake, concentrations of the invisible pollutant are up to 67 times higher. This shouldn't exactly come as a surprise. After all, we're talking about one of the largest methane leaks in history here. But the new data may may put added pressure on SoCal gas to expand the gas leak relocation area. So far, the gas company has evacuated over 2,000 residents living within a mile of the leak who have reported dizziness, nausea, fatigue, and other symptoms. Yesterday, Los Angeles County City Councilman Michael Englander called on SoCal Gas to extend relocation into adjacent areas in the San Fernando Valley. Um... The rate of methane leakage from the well has been steadily falling since late November, but SoCal Gas says it could take until late February or March for the well to be plugged. The company is in the process of drilling a relief well and plans to inject tons of concrete into the ground to seal it, sort of like filling an 8,000-foot cavity. In the meantime, methane is sure to continue its slow creep across the city. I should say they need to let smokers back indoors before they set fire to something. Oh, God, yeah. 
I agree. I'm sure Stan the Mechanic is like, well, I'm sure he's having a fit about that, yeah. But am I the only one that really doesn't have much faith in EPA to, to fix something? The EPA? We're going to talk about them later when we, we get to the fun topic of water. Well, yeah, but you you know that they're going to call EPA in to address this methane. Oh, sure they are. Uh-huh. And, the, well, hopefully they don't do to the people in L.A. what they did to the people in New Mexico. You know, fix things by making them much worse. That's the government way. Am, am I wrong? Or or does it just seem like we have... They should fix that mine. <laughs> or does it seem to you like it seems to me that we have a government full of bumbling idiots? Yeah, I like, a, like I said, it's, it's worrying that they're not on cannabinoids. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeannie. It doesn't, it's not that they seem to, Jan. It's painfully apparent that we do. Well, government's the one job you can't get fired from, from being a fucking moron. Apparently. I'm an idiot. I'm going to get a job with the government. That's a good place for you. Um, yeah. These are the... Go ahead. I need a raise. Okay, here you <laughs> These are the people that are supposed to be protecting us. Um, I'm going to say they're doing a pretty shitty job all the way around. Not sure if we want to hit the topic of water yet. We want to save it for the second fun hour? (laughs) Or do we want to get all this out of the way first? Um, Well, if you get it out of the way now, I'll be able to listen to Alex and calm down. Okay. (laughs) All right, so... We're we're going to get to the topic of water, but to get to the topic of water, we need to talk about last week I went to go see The Big Short. Great movie. Fantastic book. Really explains what happened in 2008 um, and, and shows where pretty much everything went wrong. So this is an interview with Michael Burry, who is the person who first noticed there was something wrong, something massively fucking wrong with the housing market in 2008. His character was played by Christian Bale in the film. Michael Burry, real-life market genius from The Big Short, thinks another financial crisis is looming. Of course, it's about money, right? Okay. If The Big Short, Adam McKay's adaption of Michael Lewis's book about the 2008 financial crisis... And the subject of last month's venture cover story got you all worked up over the holidays. You're probably wondering what Michael Burry, the economic soothsayer portrayed by Christian Bale, who's always just a few steps ahead of everyone, is up to these days. In an email, which readers of the book will recognize as his preferred method of communication, the real-life head of Scion Asset Management answered some of our panicked questions about the state of the financial system his ominous-sounding water trade, and what, if anything, we can feel hopeful about. Question. The movie portrays all of you as a kind of swashbuckling heroes in some ways, but McKay suggested to me that you were very troubled by what happened. Is that the case? Answer. I felt like I was watching a plane crash. I actually had that dream again and again. 
I knew what was happening, but there was nothing I or anyone could do to stop it. The last day of 2007, I couldn't come home. I was in the office till late at night. I couldn't calm down. I wrote my wife an email and just said, I can't come home. It's just too upsetting what's happening. And I don't want to come home to my kids like this. As for punishment of those responsible, borrowers were punished for their overindulgences. They lost homes and lives. Let's not forget that. But the executives at the lenders simply got rich. Question. Were you surprised no one went to jail? Answer. I'm shocked that the executives at some of the worst lenders were not punished for what they did. But this is the nature of these things. The ones running the machine did not get punished after the dot-com bubble either. All of those VCs and dot-com executives still live in their mansions, uh, lining the 280 corridor on the San Francisco Peninsula. The little guy will pay for it. The small investor. The borrower. Which is why the little guy needs to be warned to be more diligent and to be more suspicious of society's sanctioned suits offering free money. It will always be seductive, but that's the devil that wants your soul question. When I spoke to some of the other real-life characters from the Big Short, I was surprised to hear that they thought financial reform was pretty effective and that the system was much safer. Michael Lewis disagreed. In your opinion, did the crash result in any positive changes? Answer. Unfortunately, not many I can see. The biggest hope I had was that we would enter a new era of personal responsibility. Instead, we doubled down on blaming others, and this is long-term tragic. Two, the crisis incredibly made the biggest banks bigger, and it made the Federal Reserve, an unelected body, even more powerful and therefore more relevant. The major reform legislation, Dodd-Frank, was named after two guys bought and sold by special interests, and one of them should be shouldering a good amount of blame for the crisis. Banks were forced by the government to save some of the worst lenders in the housing bubble, then the government turned around and pillared the banks for the crimes of the companies they were forced to acquire. The zero interest rate policy broke the social contract for generations of hardworking Americans who saved for retirement, only to find their savings were not nearly enough. And the interest the Federal Reserve pays on the excess reserves of lending institutions broke the money multiplier and handcuffed lending to small and mid-sized enterprises where the majority of job creation and upward mobility and wages occurs. Government policies and regulations in the post-crisis era have aided in hollowing out middle America far more than anything the private sector has done. These changes even expanded the wealth gap by making asset owners richer at the expense of renters. Maybe there are some positive changes in there, but it seems I failed to see beyond the absurdity. Question. How do you think all of this affected people's perception of the system in general? Answer. The post-crisis perception, at least in the media, appears to be one of Americans being held down by Wall Street, by big companies in the private sector, and by the wealthy. Capitalism is on trial. I see it a little differently. If a lender offers me free money, I do not have to take it. And if I take it, I better understand all the terms because there is no such thing as free money. That is just basic personal responsibility and common sense. The enablers for this crisis were varied, and it starts not with the bank, but with decisions by individuals to borrow to finance a better life, and that is one very loaded decision. This crisis was such a bona fide 100-year flood that the entire world is still trying to dig out of the mud seven years later, yet so few took responsibility for having any part of it, and the reason is simple. All these people found others to blame, and to that extent an unhelpful narrative was created. Whether it's the 1% or the hedge funds or Wall Street, I do not think society is well served by failing to encourage every last American to look within, 
This crisis truly took a village, and most of the villagers themselves are not without some personal responsibility for the circumstances in which they found themselves. We should be teaching our kids to be better citizens through personal responsibility, not by the example of blame. Question. Where do we stand now economically? Answer. Well, we are right back at it, trying to stimulate growth through easy money. It hasn't worked, but it's the only tool the Fed's got. Meanwhile, the Fed's policies widen the wealth gap, which feeds political extremism, forcing gridlock in Washington. It seems the world is headed towards negative real interest rates on a global scale. This is toxic. Interest rates are used to price risk, and so in the current environment, the risk predicted pricing mechanism is broken. That is not healthy for an economy. We are building up a terrific stress in the system. Any fault lines there will certainly harm the outlook. Question. What makes you most nervous about the future? Answer. Debt. The idea that growth will remedy our debts is so addictive for politicians, but the citizens end up paying the price. The public sector has really stepped up as a consumer of debt. The Federal Reserve balance sheet is leveraged 77-1. Like I said, the absurdity, it just fuddles, befuddles me. Question. And here's where we get to water. The last line of the movie printed on a placard is Michael Barry is focusing all of his trading on one commodity, water. It sounds very ominous. Can you describe this position to me? Answer. Fundamentally, I started looking at investments in water about 15 years ago. Fresh, clean water cannot be taken for granted, and it is not. Water is political and litigious. Transporting water isn't practical for both personal and physical reasons, so buying up water rights did not make a lot of sense to me unless I was pursuing a greater fool theory of investment, which was not my intention. What became clear to me is that food is the way to invest in water. That is, grow food in water-rich areas and transport it for sale in water-poor areas. This is the method for redistributing water that is least contentious and ultimately it can be profitable, which will ensure that this redistribution is sustainable. A bottle of wine takes over 400 bottles of water to produce. The water embedded in food is what I found interesting. Last part. Question. What, if anything, makes you feel hopeful about the future? Answer. Innovation, especially in America, is continuing at a breakneck pace, even in areas facing substantial political or regulatory headwinds. Advances in healthcare, in particular, are breathtaking. So many selfless souls are working to advance science, and this is heartening. Long term, this is good for humans in general. Americans have so much natural entrepreneurial drive. The caveat is that technology that should be a tool in making lives better in the real world and in line with the American spirit of getting better and better at something, whether it's curing cancer or creating a better taxi service. I am less impressed with the market values assigned to technology that enhances distraction. We don't want Orwell's world, but we don't want Huxley's world either. You really need to read the book. It really is fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you posted stuff about it on Facebook today and uh, yesterday, was it? Yeah. And I did reply saying, yeah, the subprime car loans oh. that started building really heavily about three yeah. months after the subprime yeah. mortgage crash. Mm-hmm. So instead of consolidating and fixing the problem, they just moved the subprime market to something else instead. It's, you've got to see the big short. You have to. Yeah. I mean, it it really is a great film. It really does explain it. It's the kind of film you could take your grandma to, or you could take your eight-year-old kid to, and they would understand what happened. You know what I mean? And that's really yeah. rare. 
Okay, so I said we'd talk about water. Let's talk about water. Water. Michigan Governor Dick sends seven National Guardsmen to help, I'm sorry, 100,000 Flint residents. Earlier this week, as public outrage and media attention focused on the failed response to the Flint water disaster, Michigan Republican Governor announced that he was calling in the National Guard to help deal with the escalating crisis. On January 13, those troops arrived in the city of 100,000 people. All seven of them, yes, seven, as in what, less than eight. Doing the math, Snyder's response equates to one guardsman per 14,285.7 people. The city of Flint is experiencing a crisis of epic proportions, thanks entirely to the Snyder administration. Water poisoned with lead and water that is potentially contaminated with Legionella bacterium, which has already caused 87 serious illnesses and 10 deaths, is just one aspect of what's happening in Flint. After the governor and his appointed emergency managers switched the city's water supply to the Flint River, they decided not to bother to treat it with standard corrosion control measures. According to researchers from Virginia Tech University, Flint is the only city in the U.S. that did not have these measures in place. As Mark Edwards of the Virginia Tech Water Study described to Michigan Radio back in October, what we discovered to our shock was that they switched to a new water sauce that was obviously very corrosive, meaning it would eat up lead pipe and iron pipe and essentially put the metals into the water without controlling the corrosion. And this is a horrible idea in a city full of lead plumbing and lead pipe like Flint. He went on to describe the standard practice for changing a water source. Before you switch to a new water source, six months to a year ahead of time, you are supposed to do laboratory experiments to determine the corrosity of the water and the chemistry, the pH, the alkalinity, and the phosphate that you need to make sure the lead stays on the pipes and out of the water. Edwards explains that Flint's new water system had to have a corrosion control plan in place, otherwise the result is that you're doing an uncontrolled human experiment on a city's population. The decision by Rick Snyder's emergency manager to just skip what was apparently viewed as an unnecessary corrosion control expense has been basically just that, an uncontrolled experiment on a city population. The amount of damage done to the city's infrastructure is just beginning to be realized. There's a photo. The photo from Flint Water Study researchers. Um, Hang on, guys. I'm going to it in the chat, I think, from Flint Water Study researchers, Naizu and Siddhartha Roy, shows the magnitude of the situation. According to a new report released today, researchers believe that the damaged and corroded pipes that are transmitting water throughout the city are likely to, be, likely to become a breeding ground for bacteria, such as Legionella bacteria, which causes Legionnaire's disease, along with a host of other potential pathogens. Because of the nature of the Legionella bacteria, which is transmitted through tiny droplets of water in the air, Virginia Tech researchers are recommending that vulnerable populations have minimal contact with the water. That includes people who smoke, the elderly, people with diabetes, people who have recently had surgery, and others who might be at greater risk of contracting a waterborne respiratory disease. About 100,000 Flint residents are affected by this unmitigated disaster. In response, Governor Snyder put on a big show of sending the National Guard. Now we know that only seven guardsmen were actually dispatched to the city. 
After being forced to respond to questions regarding the number of guardsmen he sent to the city, the governor's office proclaimed that there would be as many as 30 or 40 National Guardsmen sent to Flint by the end of the week. During his PR conference on Tuesday, Snyder told the people of Michigan, As we work to ensure that all Flint residents have access to clean and safe drinking water, we are providing them with the direct assistance they need in order to stretch our resources further. The Michigan National Guard is trained and ready to assist the citizens of Flint. He neglected to mention that he was sending seven guardsmen. As reported by Fox 2, the governor's rhetoric is not doing much to quiet the growing fury in Flint. Governor Rick Snyder called in the National Guard to help assist those getting bottled water and filters to the people of Flint. Just seven members of the National Guard showed up to help the nearly 100,000 people in Flint. Kind of a joke. Yeah, I have a suggestion. Uh, his, Governor Schneider's assets need to be seized to pay for replacing all the water pipes <laughs> in Flint. Because that's the only way you can sort that. Oh, I get did I ever tell you? <laughs> I don't think I did. For a long time, and when, and when I say a long time, Jen, I mean over a year. Right. Um, there was a fire hose, a campus fire hose, laid from Little Valley, New York, to Cattaraugus, New York. Okay. That's how they got their water while an oops was being fixed. This entire community was getting their water through a fire hose that was laid out for miles and miles and miles along the side of the road. So the fact that the government can fuck up water and not know how to take care of it correctly is not the least bit surprising to me. The fact that they sent seven people to help is not very surprising to me. The fact that you don't see it on mass media outlets is not surprising to me. None of it fucking surprises me. I'm looking for houses as far up the fucking grid as I can get. I don't blame you. Well, I mean, the the thing that gets me, because of where I live, obviously, is the complete disaster of this. Because over in the UK, all public water is tested weekly. The pumping stations have pH testing sensors and everything Mm -hmm. like that. Right. In the water, 24 hours a day. And the weekly testing picks up anything like Legionnaires and stuff like that. Right. And that's just normal over here. But apparently, your governors can basically do whatever they like and cause, well, well who knows how many people are going to end up sick through this. But I understand that here, what happens here a lot is the local officials say, this is somebody else's job. And then the county officials say, well, you know, the the towns or the the state is doing something about this, so we don't have to look at this. And then the state says, well, 
the cities or the counties or the federal government are supposed to be doing something. You know, they, they take care of this. Everybody takes care of this. And the federal government says, well, you know what? The, the cities, the counties, and the states, I'm sure they're looking at this, and we don't have to look at this. And yeah. then something really fucking bad happens. You all stand around and go, oh, nobody was looking at this. Yeah, that is the main difference in the that UK. The, the guys in charge of the water are legally responsible. So if anything goes wrong, it's them that's going to get it. You know, it can't get past passed off to somebody else well, which is what how it should be i mean right. yeah. it shouldn't be a a football getting kicked around the place oh, uh, right and this is part of the problem oh and the seven guardsmen until you know there was a village in devon in the south of the uk mm-hmm. that had a problem with its water right. and the town only had like ten thousand people in it and dozens of uh army, because we don't really do that over here, but dozens mm-hmm. of experts and support workers went to that little-ass town and were handing out water. Trucks full of water were parked in the street to give people as much as they needed. Yeah, and that, that was a shitty little town in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, um, it's not quite like that here. And no. it it just gets better. Um I remember saying to you once, actually saying once in a show, I don't know how we can believe the government when they tell us that they're taking care of our water when we can't even believe them about whether the air was safe to breathe after 9-11. Yeah. That that tells you all you need to know. The only reason this was allowed to happen is because the people of Flint, Michigan aren't rich people. Um, You would never see this happening in a a rich area. I'm just saying okay on water uh, and your government truly cares about you EPA said it did its job despite not telling Flint its water was contaminated the Environmental Protection Agency chief told reporters the agency did its job when asked how the Obama administration handled the ongoing water crisis in the city of Flint, Michigan The EPA did its job, but clearly the outcome was not what anyone would have wanted. Gina McCarthy told reporters while at an event at a D.C. soup kitchen showing how to reduce food waste. McCarthy's remarks come after news the agency officials knew there was lead in Flint's water at least six months before state regulators admitted in October to using the wrong standards for keeping lead pollution out of drinking water. So we're going to work with the state. We're going to work with Flint, McCarthy said. We're going to take care of the problem. We know Flint is a situation that never should have happened. But the EPA spent months quietly warning state regulators of the lack of corrosion controls for Flint water supplies. The EPA told the state it needed to use chemical treatments to prevent lead lines and plumbing from getting into Flint's drinking water, but the agency did nothing to publicize its concerns over the city's water, despite the state's refusal to control against lead poisoning. The Detroit News reported that the EPA Region 5 Administrator Susan Hedman said she sought a legal opinion on whether the EPA could force action, but it wasn't completed until November. There is a legitimate concern about EPA performance in terms of alerting the public, said Democratic State Senator Minority Leader Jim Aniak. Uh, to the Detroit News. And frankly, as a member of Congress, I want to know when there's the potential of a health crisis in my district. 
the financially distressed city of Flint decided to save money by switching where it got its drinking water from nearly two years ago. The city decided to get its drinking water from a local river instead of Lake Huron, but state regulators didn't use the right standards when controlling for corrosion, meaning lead could get into Flint's drinking water. EPA officials knew as early as April 2015 that state regulators were not using the correct standards for preventing lead contamination, but instead of publicizing the news, the agency quietly prodded state regulators and waited on a legal opinion that did not come for months. It wasn't until October that state officials admitted to not using the correct testing procedures for monitoring drinking water in Flint. Since then, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and President Barack Obama have declared states of emergency over the Flint water crisis. The Michigan head of Michigan's department, no oh God, the head of Michigan's Department of Environmental Water Quality, um, Environmental Quality, resigned in December after a state task force lambasted its agency's handling of Flint's water. We believe the primary responsibility for what happened in Flint rests with the Michigan Department of Environmental Quantity Quality. The state task force wrote to Snyder in December. Although many individuals and entities at state and local levels contributed to creating and prolonging the problem, MDEQ, the government agency that has the responsibility to ensure safe drinking water in Michigan, the task force wrote, it failed in its responsibility and must be held accountable in the future. Uh, McCarthy said the EPA also established a task force that's conducting an audit of how Michigan regulators handled the water crisis. She said the task force will make sure whatever improvements need to be made get made and get done quickly. Yeah, first order of business. Suck everyone involved and get new people. It's just insane, isn't it? It um it doesn't get much better. Yeah. So, um the one thing when you ask people, do you trust your government to control your water? Most people say no. These are the reasons why. And there's more on water. State OK's Dominion plan to drain coal ash ponds into James and Potomac rivers. Richmond, Virginia. This is where the drinking water comes from in Richmond, Virginia. FYI. A procession of more than 100 disappointed citizens filed out of a Virginia State Water Control Board meeting late Thursday afternoon after the agency approved permits for Dominion, Virginia power to begin draining water from coal ash ponds on site in the Flavana and Prince William counties into the James and Potomac rivers. Over the past few months, the permit applications have stirred opposition against Dominion Virginia Power by local and regional environmental groups, such as the James River Association and the Southern Environmental Law Center. Although Thursday's meeting was brewing with opponents to the plan, the board approved the permits supported by the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. State Senator Scott A. Sovell, Democrat of Fairfax, Fairfax joined opponents at the meeting. He said Dominion's plan was unsettling to more than just hardcore environmentalists. You're just not hearing concerns from the environmental community, Sobel said. You're hearing concerns from major institutions saying, let's slow down, let's get this right. Sobel suggested that the board consider delaying its decision to allow further study into the harm that water draining from coal ash ponds might pose to the creeks and rivers, especially Quantico Creek, which is already impaired due to high concentrations of nickel in the creek bed. The controversy even drew attention from outside the Commonwealth. The Maryland Department of Natural Resources submitted a comprehensive letter 
to Virginia's DEQ that contested Virginia's standards for heavy metal concentration concerning the protection of the shared waters of the Potomac River. Approval of the permits allows Dominion to begin discharging water immediately from coal ash ponds at Burma Power Station, roughly 50 miles upstream of Richmond on the James River and the Possum Point Power Station located 30 miles south of Washington, D.C. at the confluence of the Potomac and Quantico Creek. Coal ash is the problematic residue left over from burning coal and is commonly stored in retaining ponds, generally on the site of coal-burning power plants. Potentially toxic concentrations of heavy metal inherent to coal ash include arsenic and mercury. Kathy Taylor, Dominion's Director of Electronic Environmental Services, assured the board of her company's consideration for human and environmental health. Before the vote, she said Dominion's plan met all applicable laws and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency regulations. This approach complies with current federal and state regulations, including the newly promulgated EPA rule, Taylor said. Board member Roberta A. Callum cast the sole dissenting vote on both permit approvals. She expressed concern over the complexity of the issue and said there should be more time for a review and public comment. The permits are the first step in Dominion's plan to close 11 coal ash ponds sited on four power plants around the state at an estimated cost of $325 million. Once the approximately 500 million gallons of contaminated water is treated and drained from these two sites, the utility must obtain further permits to bury the remaining solid coal ash within layers of protective lining, soil, and vegetation. Last September, federal regulators from the EPA said new pollution limits concerning the discharges from electric power plants into the nation's waterways. That forced state utilities across the U.S., including Virginia and Dominion Power, to consider their disposal of coal ash. Most Dominion Virginia power plants, including the sites at Bermo and Possum Point, have been converted from coal to natural gas and therefore no longer produce coal ash. Permits for draining coal ash ponds at the Chesapeake Energy Center and the coal-burning Chesterfield Power Station will be considered later this year. Yeah, fantastic. Mm, but it's okay, it meets the regulations. Yeah, don't, don't worry about all the fish floating about in the surface of the <laughs> river. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, don't, don't worry you get mercury poisoning from eating fish. Yeah. Oh God, it's you know I'm I'm just floored by this. No worries, you're just drinking it. No worries, you're just buying these houses. No worries, you're just buying these cars. Why do we have regulators? If the government is going to do fuck all to protect us, why the fuck are they here? Except to be fucking parasites to steal from us. Sorry, go ahead. Well, because you know they need to get paid for something. I don't even know. I don't even know if I'm going to be calm when Alex comes on. <laughs> I'm just disgusted by this. It's yeah. water. Yep. This is the one thing you know. It's, it's yeah, kind of the, the one wa- thing. If the water gets screwed up, that goes into the whole food chain. It's that simple. It's okay though. So they're making the big bucks. They can, you know, get ice glacier water <laughs> I don't know I what a fuck up yet you know it, it really bothers me and the only reason I talked about it tonight is because nobody else was I didn't see it anywhere else I saw little local stories 
in little local newspapers and nobody was talking about him. Nobody was saying how corrupt everything is, how the government is doing nothing to protect any of these people. It needs to be talked about. It's an issue. Yeah. Okay. I have nine minutes until <laughs> we bring Alex on. I don't think I want to... Uh, I don't know that I want to... Um, yeah. Does anybody else find anything in here they want to talk about? Or does anybody want to talk about anything else before my head explodes? Oh, whoa, I don't want your head to explode. I'm very upset about this. Well, it's, it's, we can, can we bitch about drones? We can bitch about drones. I guess we can. I can scroll up to that. Give me a second. Okay. You may be powerless to stop a drone from hovering over your own yard. Oh, this is definitely better. Yeah. <laughs> it's better. I'm still going to shoot the fuckers, but it, it's better. <laughs> William Meredith had just finished grilling dinner for his family when he saw a drone hovering over his land. So he did what he said any Kentuckian might do. He grabbed his Blaney M1 Super 90 shotgun, took aim, and unleashed three rounds of birdshot. The only people I've heard anything negative from are liberals that don't want us having guns and people who own drones, said the truck company owner. Now a self-described drone slayer. Downing the quadrocopter, which had a camera, was a way to assert his right to privacy and property, he said. The drone was owned by John Boggs, a hobbyist who told authorities he was trying to take pictures of the scenery. He argues in a lawsuit filed this month in U.S. District Court in Louisville that Meredith did not have the right to shoot his craft down because the government controls every inch of airspace in America. For decades, the issue of who controls the nation's air didn't much matter to everyday Americans. Planes, after all, typically must stay hundreds of feet above the ground while in the air. But drones that can take off or land almost anywhere, and the tech companies who dream of using them to deliver goods to your front porch, are igniting a debate over who exactly owns the air just above ordinary homes and lawns. There is a gray area in terms of how far your property rights extend, said Jeremy Scott, National Security Council at the Electronic Privacy Information Center. It's going to need to be addressed sooner rather than later as drones are integrated into the national airspace. The issue is becoming more urgent as drones are crowding America's skies. The Consumer Technology Association estimated 700,000 drones were sold last year. According to the Federal Aviation Administration, every inch above the tip of your grass blades is the government's jurisdiction. Nifty, huh? The FAA is responsible for the safety and management of U.S. airspace from the ground up, said an agency spokesman, echoing rules laid out on its website. But common law long held landowners' rights went all the way to heaven, and today it's clear they have some rights. After all, developers and even cities sometimes sell off rights to the air above their buildings. And if a neighbor has a tree limb hanging over your fence, you can generally chop it off. The rise of air travel initially sparked questions about where those rights end and flyable space begins. The issue reached the Supreme Court during the 1940s in a case called United States v. Cosby after a farmer bought a suit against the government over low-flying military planes taking off and landing from a nearby airport. 
The planes, he said, forced him out of the chicken business, and he wanted compensation. The court gave it to him and said that a property owner owns at least as much of the space above the ground as he can occupy or use in connection with the land. But even then, the justices didn't clearly define a precise aerial boundary for landowners, leaving a gray area that Boggs is hoping to clear up for the burgeoning drone market. The industry is growing quickly, and it's to some extent being stifled by the legal uncertainty surrounding these issues, said James Mackler, an attorney at Frost, Brown, and Todd, who represents Boggs. If tech companies are going to deliver goods to the yards of their customers, there will need to be clarity on exactly where a drone can fly. Could a drone be delivering a package to your neighborhood fly over your yard 50 feet? Or would it need to descend vertically from hundreds of feet in the air to avoid trespassing on your airspace? Boggs is asking the court to rule he's entitled to $1,500 to cover damages to the drone. But more importantly, he wants a judge to decide whether his drone was trespassing on the air over Meredith's property or if it was flying within the jurisdiction of the federal government. A complicating factor is that Boggs and Meredith tell different stories about the day in question. Boggs' suit says the drone was approximately 200 feet above ground, a claim he has previously said was backed up by images captured by the craft. But Meredith said it was much closer to his home. And when a local judge dismissed criminal charges against Meredith in October, she relied on multiple eyewitnesses who said the drone was flying below the trees. In 2012, Congress tasked the FAA with integrating drones into America's skies. The FAA is still finalizing these rules, which are expected to be wrapped up by June. Its proposed rules have little to say about property rights, though they recommend that commercial drones cannot be operated over a person not directly involved in operation. Crafts flown by hobbyists such as Boggs are also not addressed. Some argued the agency has the legal authority to address the privacy issues raised by drones, but the agency does not consider privacy to be their role or expertise, said the University of Washington law professor Ryan Callow. The FAA says it's part of a White House offered, off ordered effort to develop best practices on privacy within agencies, think tanks, and drone companies, but these talks will not produce hard and fast rules. For now, everyday homeowners mostly have to depend on local laws to fend off drones. In some cases, homeowners can bring civil cases against the pilots of low-flying drones, according to Carlo. They may also be able to persuade local law enforcement to bring charges against the operators under existing trespass, nuisance, or peeping Tom laws. While the federal government has moved slowly to craft drone rules, 32 states have enacted their own laws or resolutions regarding the crafts, according to the National Conference of State Legislators. But the specifics vary across the country, and some states left it to local authorities to judge when drones are trespassing on people's property. Meredith says the day Boggs' drone, a DJI Phantom with a camera, flew by. He was actually the third time in 18 months he spotted that kind of craft over his neighborhood. He had called the police on previous occasions, he said, but got no help. By the time Boggs' drone flew over his land, hovering over multiple passes, according to Meredith, he was fed up. In my mind, it wouldn't have been every di any different than if he had been standing in my backyard with a video camera, Meredith said. Well, the thing that strikes me is they go back to this 200 feet thing. Mm -hmm. And anyone who thinks he could have hit a drone at 200 feet with birdshot, yeah, they're obviously not suitable to be judging anything. Uh, <laughs> take them to a shooting range, set up a drone sized target at 200 yards and see if the best marksman in the country can hit it with birdshot at that range it's that simple no, I know if, if, it's, if it was true 
God, that guy needs to like enter the Olympics or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that struck here's the thing though is they could probably hit it at two hundred feet, um, but it wouldn't have enough force, and the pattern would be so freaking big that I don't think it would drop the damn thing. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you you fire it with a ten gauge, you're it's going to go two hundred feet. I just think that the pattern is going to be so fucking big. I don't think you could break a clay target at that. No, it won't even go through paper. It won't damage a paper target at that distance, let alone anything more solid. <laughs> the thing that struck me is the FAA has control of the air ending above your grass blades. Yeah, that's been a long time argument. Um, yeah. I don't know. There, so, um... so when the wasps go nuts and start biting me, I can call the FAA to get them off me? Come on. Well, they're yeah. flying in the FAA's airspace, so yeah. Exactly. I mean... Yeah, they... we've talked about this before. The UK has massively different laws on all this. Um, you know, we already have drone legislation, so yeah. Yeah, well... Your government is kind of prepared for things, and yeah. our government is kind of not. So, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't obvious from the water stories, it should be obvious from the FAA drone stories. Uh, the government is at least 25 years behind the times here. And uh, speaking of government being behind the times, would be about time to get Alex. Okay. I'll okay. see if I can get him. Okay. Welcome, <clears throat> Alex. Hello. I uh, I uh, played with the volume on my microphone, so I don't know if you want to recheck the levels. No, it seems fine. Oh, okay, fantastic. Okay. Um, good evening, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 1-18-2016. Hi, Alex. What's new and exciting this week? <laughs> All kinds of things. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so for anybody that hasn't heard, um, I, I spent my Sunday morning uh, at a pretty awful anti-vaping rally in New York City. Um, uh, again, a special thank you for uh, Jeff Steyer and Gregory Connolly for uh, attending and, and helping out. Uh, it was an uh, absolute pleasure to hang out with them. And uh, um, in case anybody hadn't already heard, um, Jeff Steyer is actually a resident in the district in which this rally was held. Um, huh. And that, that kind of made his participation even more relevant because... Um, much like meeting with lawmakers or anything like that, it's always a lot more impactful. And, and in some cases, it's required to have somebody that actually lives in that district. Um, so, you know, he brings his, his, his residents uh, to the, the event and, and uh, you know, actually, you know, likely has personal relationships with some of the people that were, were putting this thing on. So mm-hmm. um, that was... That was uh, that was especially significant, and um, 
so again, much appreciated for their participation. Um, and of course, we had a few um, just uh, you know New York City vapors and uh, a couple of retailers showed up as well. Um, and uh, and thanks to uh, Spike uh, Spike Bobain, uh, who actually managed to get herself positioned directly behind the podium <laughs> with with uh, uh, a, a very good sign. Um, kind of telling the truth about, about this issue. So, um, yeah, you know, it was a New York city thing. I've, I, there's been a lot of social media traffic on the posts that we've put up. Um, I, I would generally call it a success for us. And of course, just by virtue of the misinformation that they were spouting at the event, um, it's sort of, it's sort of a failure right out of the gates for them. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it was it was a good time. Um, I actually got to put my business card in the hand of Letitia James, um, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think there was there was a, another a woman that was there. I think she lives she lives in the neighborhood as well. And she turned to me at one point and she said, she said "Are these are these things dangerous?" And I said, I said, "No, I'm not really. I you know, I, I quit smoking after you know 21 years using using an electronic cigarette." And she said, "Yeah." That's that's good to hear. You know, my brother is it quit smoking using one of these things, and and you know, I, I hope it really works for him. And so, you know, this is just some person off the street that really, I think, was just aware that the event was going on and, and wanted to check it out. But uh, right. always good to have those conversations with you know outside the kind of core vaping community people. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So. Yeah, it was it was a good way to spend a Sunday morning. Um, I, if, if you have, if there are any anti e-cig rallies in your neighborhood, um, I, I highly recommend attending. Um, it's uh, and and by all means, reach out to me or, or, or Greg, um, and we can help you out with some some pointers um, as far as uh, you know what to bring, how to act, how to dress, what to prepare for, um, those types of things. Um, and I, I I honestly kind of see this stuff happening a little bit more frequently um, as we get down to the wire here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was good. Um, <laughs> and, of course, today uh, it's a day off for a lot of people, but uh, if you're working in, on legislative issues, um, you try to take that time while uh, lots of policymaking bodies are in, well, they have the day off, so... Right. Fortunately, nothing moved today, but uh, <laughs> there's no shortage of stuff to do. Oh, no. Of course um, not. So tonight, I just got finished. Um, let's see, I updated a couple of things. Uh, we just put out a call to action for Athens, Clark County, Georgia. Um, they are meeting tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Uh, and this is kind of, uh, this falls under, I guess, early warning. Um, the, uh, the mayor and commissioners are being requested to update the county's smoking ordinance. Um, so there's not, a, I, I didn't see any real language. There's no actual ordinance yet, but, uh, there's a report that's going to be presented and, uh, it's, it's happening during a section of the agenda where, uh, residents can can get up and speak. So uh, if you live in the Athens Clark County area, um, please make plans to attend that um, 
commissioners meeting uh, and uh, and take that opportunity to speak. If not, um, the county government has an agenda comment form, which we have a link to on our call to action. And of course, all the relevant emails and phone numbers for everybody from the mayor, uh, including uh, her executive assistant, which uh, oftentimes it's actually more beneficial to put communications in the hands of, of staff. Um, right. So, uh, yes, Athens, Clark County, Georgia, take action. Um, and then we have El Monte, California. Um, this is sort of a second alert. The uh, This is kind of a particularly horrible ordinance um, for people who haven't, who didn't get the first alert. Um, it's ordinance number 2871, and this would prohibit vaping in condominiums, apartments, uh, other multi-unit residences, and this goes as far as to prohibit vaping on, like, your private porch or patio. Um, so, yeah, that's if that's a pretty good example of overreach, um, bit, yeah. especially concerning vaping, um, which actually reminds me of something else that happened yesterday. <laughs> I'm just kind of, you know, I'm imagining standing up on your back porch and having a vape and, you know, the you know, Apple turnover goes floating into somebody else's apartment next door. And, you know, I mean, I'll have, Oh, the humanities. Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we were standing, I was standing about 15, 20 feet away from, uh, Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, uh, while we were out on the sidewalk after the event. And, uh, I kind of saw her like, you know, she kind of waved her hand in front of her face a little bit. And she turned to one of her friends. She's like, I can smell it. It's disgusting. And, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm vaping something that's, it's a peanut butter and banana flavor. How if, dare you? If if you've got a problem with, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you what, a toasted peanut butter, honey, and banana sandwich, that's just, that's heaven. I've never had one, but I think there's something wrong with these people. I mean, like mentally wrong with people who have a problem with food odors. Like, I mean, because most of what we use for vaping, the flavoring is food flavoring. So I, they have a problem with the scent of flavor. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do well in life. They're really yeah, not. I mean- if, if I was vaping, you know, like chicken tandoori flavor, that might seem a little out of place. Um, but, you know, well, I don't chicken know Chicken tandoori. I don't even yeah. want to imagine who would make that. I'm sure there's someone out there. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, no, I, I think those people have, I really do, I think they have a mental disorder. I really do. And I know that sounds like a horrible thing to say about uh, the esteemed Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, which I wasn't. But I was just saying people who react like that to sense. Don't get me wrong. I work in a grocery store and, and there's a lot of scents that come off a lot of the products and they're unpleasant. But I have two legs. I can walk away. That's yeah. what an adult does just saying yeah you know and outside on the sidewalk um 
you can you can be somewhat assured that first of all in in New York City the <laughs> oh, smell of peanut air, butter and banana air. floating down the street <laughs> is is sort of a relief okay um, I know it's January and it's freezing outside so we're not getting no. the full you know frontal exposure of <laughs> normal like garbage day odors around here but like Trust me, any t- any day of the week that you're smelling, you know, baked goods or delicious sandwich, um, it's 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 kind of a treat. Um, well, it it is better because it it kind of. I remember living in New York as a teenager. It kind of has a a baked urine smell on its best day. That's that's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. Um, yeah, anything that doesn't smell like that is a vast improvement. Or Absolutely. the traffic fumes; those are pretty noxious. Those are pretty. I'm I'm, I'm weird. I like the smell of auto exhaust. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm just saying, in, in comparison, you know. Yeah. Exactly. The lovely odor of like puff pastry, maybe bear claw, or a peanut butter and banana sandwich versus the smell of diesel exhaust. Yeah. I don't know which one I'd have a bigger problem with. <laughs> These people are just looking for an excuse so they they can put on a show. Yeah. So, um, yeah, enough with the, the funny stories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, uh, I don't really have any state stuff other than Florida to talk about, um, and I, I should probably, I guess, clarify something because we've been getting a lot of. Uh, feedback about this um the florida indoor clean air bill let me just get this up so i i am giving uh uh sorry bear with me here no worries um so it is hb 1143 and we sent out an email alert to the entire state um so tomorrow at four o'clock tuesday january 19th uh there is a health quality subcommittee hearing and um, just to put it out there, this is at 306 House Office Building. Uh, that's room 306 in the House Office Building, 402 mm-hmm. South Monroe Street, Tallahassee, Florida. Right. Um, this is likely the first of three committees that this bill will go through. And our general feeling and based on feedback that we've gotten from uh, uh, the state level group there, uh, Florida Smoke Free Association, um, is that pretty much no matter what we do or how many people we activate or how many people that show up, this bill is probably going to pass through this committee just to kind of keep it alive. This is, this is actually kind of typical for stuff that, you know, lawmakers know is going to have several opportunities to be heard and amended and so on. The first one is kind of just a wash. There's no, there's no real point in, in rallying the troops. So, what we've done is, you know, we alerted the entire state, and if you can make it, uh, by all means, drive up to Tallahassee, and um, if you are particularly motivated to speak, uh, send an email to td at flsmokefree.org. Um, they're probably going to pick maybe three or four people to uh, to speak that I would assume probably by now they've already got folks lined up, but mm-hmm. um, so... 
there's that. And then what we did was we followed up with people who live in districts represented by someone on the committee. Um, right. Much like what I was saying about Jeff Steyer attending the rally last night, mm-hmm. residents from districts are going to have, you know, their messages are going to carry a little bit more weight, in some cases a lot more weight uh, right. than, you know, someone outside of the district. So, um, we intentionally kind of limited participation on this one because in the, in the event that this gets further along in the process, we, we want all of Florida to come back. And there's a lot of, we got a lot of members in Florida and I, I've said this a couple of times before for a state that has not until this point seen a, you know, a credible uh, state policy threat for vapor products. Um, we have a ton of members. I think there was at one point we had just as many members in Florida that we had in California. Wow. Uh, and, and California is sort of a never-ending parade of of, of nonsense. Um, so, um, you know, special thanks to, um, you know, anybody in Florida that's been uh, generating CASA membership. Um, that's great. Um, but we want to we want to kind of make sure that that we're actually <clears throat> giving you something to do when it's when it's going to have the most impact. So that's sort of a, that's the best explanation I can give for this. And I, and I hope people are understanding and, and uh, when the time is right, we'll, you know, we'll send up the alarm. Attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's Florida. I'm, I'm uh, interested to see how things go tomorrow and, um, and we'll, yeah. we'll update that as soon as we get more information. Um, Let's see. I guess the other things that I am trying to pay attention to this year, um, well, not trying to pay attention to, <laughs> is the stuff that I'm very concerned about and, uh, and, and getting a grip on is, so from odd number of years to even number of years, and depending on the states, you know, not all states meet every single year. Um, and in a lot of cases, what you'll have is carryover sessions. Um, and in, 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 in some of these cases, you have sort of shorter legislative sessions. So bills move really quickly. Um, and, uh, and a lot of times these are bills that are carried over from the previous session. So, uh, I, I've been spending some time this weekend looking at Hawaii, um, and, uh, it's Hawaii. They have tons of bills yeah, they do. <laughs> and the process is, it actually moves quick on a good day. So, uh, it's, yeah. it's actually kind of difficult to follow. Um, but, uh, just kind of something for people to be aware of, um, that, uh, you know, pay, pay attention to your state's legislative, legislative calendar, because, uh, it's likely that, uh, you're going to be looking at a, a sort of a lightning round, and um, a lot of bills are getting carried over from last year, which means they're already sort of part of the way through the process. Right. Um, so that's something that, that I'm working hard to, to stay on top of this year. And um, obviously, the more eyes that we have on this stuff, the better. Um, so uh, and that also reminded me of one more thing. I don't want to drag on too long, um, but in all of my researching, um, I actually looked at a bill and I, it's going to take me too long to go back and, and find it here. Um, but uh, there is a bill in 
the Senate, the U.S. Senate, okay. that was introduced by uh, Richard Blumenthal, uh, of of course. Of course. Uh, it, it, there's, there's, it, it, it doesn't look like there's much happening with it right now, so we're not even going to treat this as a threat, but mm-hmm. there was there's a pretty interesting section in there, and uh, I think this is something for people to be aware of uh, okay. as well going forward. Um, so just kind of putting it out there to maybe start the discussion and, and, and hopefully kind of wake people up a little bit. Um, the language in this section, the bill itself is meant to equalize tobacco taxes oh, for God. all tobacco products. Parity. They want tobacco uh, yeah. parity across the board. Exactly. It's uh, tax parity or equalization, however yeah. you want to word that. Um and I actually ran some numbers. I was looking at, um, you know, a can of, of snus that I have, um, uh, the uh, tax on, uh, was it discrete single packet uh, Oh, yeah, snuff, that's usually, usually which, pretty much lower. Yeah. Than, like this, generals. This would be, it, it's a new definition. Um, I mean, they have a tax on moist snuff, uh, which is a weight-based uh, but this mm-hmm. is sort of a per unit based thing, and it was like per thousand units, um, right. and it would basically it would practically double the cost of a tin of snooze. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I mean now like a, a, a can of this particular brand I think is around three dollars, and this would add something like two dollars and fifty cents to it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's just one part of it. But they're you know they they are actually this bill would update the taxes applied to tobacco products to include Swedish snus and other uh, you know single unit packet style uh, right. moist tobacco products. Uh, and then there's another section where they include any products deemed to be tobacco by the food and drug by the yeah food and drug administration. That's uh, their definition. I'm just paraphrasing, um, okay. but uh, essentially that would include vapor products yep. if and when the FDA deeming regulations are enacted. So the FDA deeming regulations themselves wouldn't be enacting the taxes, but we can pretty much count on threats coming from the usual suspects, Senator Blumenthal being one of them, oh, yes. uh, to not only enact a tax on electronic cigarettes at the federal level, but push for tax parity. Um, so it, it, kind of a complicated explanation. I hope I simplified that enough for people to understand. Um, but uh, yeah, the threat doesn't end with uh, regulation with, with, with the FDA <laughs> taxation too. Yay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the joys of legitimacy. Uh, yep. I guess that's what happens when you go from, something that's a gray market what i think what we were considered as a gray market product not a black market product not a approved product so it's gray market um to an not an approved but like a an fda regulated marketplace it's a very different world we're looking at at that point i don't know i i, I choose to stick with legal product uh, vapor products. Well, no, are, it, it are is it legal. is legal there's nothing illegal about it it's just that it's not an FDA regulated marketplace. Does that make sense? Make more sense than yeah. Okay. Well, I wasn't saying that it was a black market product or a great, you know, it's it's a it's an economic term. It wasn't 
meant to be anything else. So, yeah. Um, so and I guess that's it. Well, while we are on the subject of the FDA, um, oh. the uh, I, I can't remember if we talked about this last week, um, but uh, let's see. Well, I'll, I'll just try to cut some time here and say that um, we now have, I believe, 41 sponsors on HR 2058. That's awesome. Uh, 41 to 43 sponsors. So uh, we have updated our call to action on um, HR 2058. Awesome. And uh, if you live in a district represented by one of the co-sponsors, we have provided, uh, it's not, it's not on that. <laughs> uh, we have provided a, an opportunity for you to, um, contact your lawmaker and give them some thanks for co-sponsoring this bill. Um, yeah, here we go. Thank an HR 2058 co-sponsor. So, uh, residents in Alaska, California, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, Maryland, Minnesota, uh, Missouri, Montana, North Carolina, of course, North Carolina, Nevada, New York, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, of course, Tennessee, uh, Texas, Virginia, of course, Virginia, uh, Wisconsin, and West Virginia, uh, West Virginia and Kentucky also looking at tax bills this year. We'll be getting around to that probably soon. Um, all of those, there are districts in those states, specific districts, not the entire state, but districts in those states um, where your representative has signed on as a co-sponsor. And please take the opportunity to send them a, a thank you letter. In fact, the thank you letters are having somewhat of an effect in Congress because these representatives are able to kind of talk to their colleagues and say, well, I got a bunch of thank you letters from my constituents. How about that? So it's, it's kind of helping to keep the buzz alive about HR 2058. Yep. And this, this bill is still very much in play and um, by all means uh, people should, should be supporting it and, and encouraging their, their representatives to co-sponsor. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, my representative was one of the original co-sponsors. So, yay. Fantastic. Yeah. Don't normally hear about that, so that was kind of a cool thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I, I, well, I know there's stuff we can talk about for hours and hours, but I guess that's it for this week, Alex. Yep. Sorry to go so long, but uh, no. it, was, it was an exciting weekend. So <laughs> it, it, Well, it sounds like it was an exciting time. And, you know, I'm... I'm thrilled to know that New York officials are, are concerned by, you know, scent pollution. Um, <laughs> so, so, thank you so much for everything you do for us, Alex, and we'll see you next week. Great. Thanks. Thank you. I've got to say... Being scared over scent. That's rich. Yeah, I wonder what perfume she was waiting. Uh, Odwan Nothing. She's probably one of those. She's probably runs one of those offices. I don't know if you've ever heard about them, but uh, there are people who 
the multiple chemical sensitivity people. Uh, has anybody heard of those people? Yeah. It's people that, okay. It's chemically sensitive. She's chemically sensitized. Um, she can't even come in my house. Your house? Yeah, she can't come in my house. Your house, Miss Natural? Yeah, it it makes her, yeah, and I mean, and it's, it's really weird. Um, it, it affects her not only physically, but it affects her mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like her synapses are all her, yeah, synapses. Synapsis is all thrown mm-hmm. up. Um, but yeah, this lady, if this lady was in a city hall building, is not chemically sensitized. Otherwise, it would put her right off of the fucking deep end because everything in those places yeah. is a horrid concoction of chemicals. What I was going to say is, is a lot of those people in their offices, they have policies sent around that um, you can't wear a scented deodorant, you can't use scented shampoo or conditioner, and you can't wear a perfume or cologne. So that uh, makes it an environment they can stand to live in. So I was going to say uh, Rosenthal was probably wearing Odois nothing. If that's a pleasant smell. Um, so, yeah. I guess... Uh, God, what's left? Oh, yeah. I remember now. There's still so much more to talk about. I feel like we could just talk all night, never get to the end of it. Um, I think I'll read this. This is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and this was written yesterday. It's called, I Had a Dream, and Unfortunately, It Came True. Today marks, that would be yesterday, the 55th anniversary of a world historical speech by the last victorious military commander to occupy the White House, President Dwight D. Ike Eisenhower. His last speech while in office holds crucial implications for the U.S. today, as well as the history we celebrate tomorrow on Martin Luther King Day. Ike served in World War II as the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe before becoming president. He helped encourage an industrial mobilization that enabled the U.S. to liberate Europe and defend democracy from the global threat of fascism, but he expressed concerns about its future consequences. In his departing address to the American people before leaving the White House, President Eisenhower described the necessity of creating a defense industry intertwined with secret government agencies while predicting in no uncertain terms that they would together come to present a threat to democracy in America. Ike said, we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is the new American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every statehouse, every office of the federal government. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved, so is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combined combination endanger our liberties or our democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. 
only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machine of our defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Emphasis added. With the benefit of 55 years of hindsight, Ike appears more present than Nostradamus. Few issues better modify the threat to democracy posed by the military-industrial complex than the mass NSA surveillance, which continues despite widespread criticism and protest. We continue to challenge unconstitutional domestic spying in the courts, but years after we filed our first challenge, however, we are still seeking crucial rulings. Some legal decisions have indicated widespread concerns about the emergence of a, quote, almost Orwellian system of domestic spying, but others have unfortunately allowed these programs to continue. Mass surveillance has also forced attention from the executive branch. President Obama promised surveillance reform when running for the White House, writing a campaign pledge in 2008 to support, quote, any steps needed to preserve civil liberties and to prevent executive branch abuse in the future. Only in office, he commissioned a review group to issue recommendations, but the administration then declined to adopt most of those recommendations, falling short of the president's campaign promise. Meanwhile, Congress last year imposed the first restrictions in two generations on U.S. intelligence agencies, but just months later embraced new surveillance measures and enacted both sets of laws before ever conducting an independent investigation to uncover crucial facts such as how many Americans have been monitored by the NSA or how many times the system has been abused by people using the government's powerful tools for their disturbing personal purposes. The last point is important because on the few occasions that it has examined the intelligence agencies, Congress has discovered recurring violations of constitutional rights. Shining a light on such violations has led to essential limits on the agency's powers. Historically, the most significant congressional investigation was in the 1970s when ad hoc committees convened in the Senate under Senator Frank Church and the House under Representative Otis Pike revealed the U.S. Senate in 1976 described as a sophisticated vigilante operation aimed squarely at preventing legitimate exercise of First Amendment rights of free speech and association. What Congress had uncovered was well known within the U.S. intelligence agencies as the Counterintelligence Programs, or Comintelpro. It was a well-kept secret until a group of anti-war activists in Philadelphia literally broke into an FBI office to take and copy files that had long remained secret. The most prolific target of unconstitutional surveillance during this area was a f- era was a figure whose memory we celebrate with a national holiday tomorrow, which would be today, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. His example involving not only surveillance, but also a character assassination campaign and a coordinated attempt to drive him to suicide should serve as a stark reminder to anyone today who thinks that because they have nothing to hide, have nothing to worry about. And Dr. King is not alone. Other examples abound. The Snowden revelations should have sparked the same outrage that drove the Church and Pike committees to investigate and reveal Conantel Pro. They still could if Congress finally does the job and investigates the issues that Snowden and other whistleblowers have raised. In 2016, a decade and a half since the beginning of the mass surveillance regime, a robust congressional investigation has still yet to happen. We have a great deal to learn from President Eisenhower's present warning. 
His final speech as president appears to be increasingly poignant, particularly as we celebrate the memory of an international hero who's targeted by parts of the military-industrial complex that Ike helped create and grew to fear. So, yeah, that happened. Yeah, we're really in happy bunny land, aren't we? Oh, yeah, it, it's been. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you wish for the happy old days where we used to talk about shit like uh, Kingfisher and dirt boxes and all that stuff? <laughs> okay. Oh boy. I where am I? Oh, okay. Um I think before I read that one, I need to read the one about Blackberry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should put these in better order. I put all the water ones together. You know what I mean? They went together and it, it kind of filed along a theme. And it was really easy to deal with. I need to get better at organizing these. Oh, well, there's this. The the uh, one I've highlighted about the uh, armaments. Should I read that one first? It's up to you. Okay, because it's a new year, so why not? EPA, FDA stocking up on body armor during President Obama's watch. EPA, VA, FDA among those nabbing heavy armaments. Thursday, January 7th, 2016, by Kellen Howell, The Washington Times. As the U.S. engages in a national debate over the militarization of police, federal data shows that government agencies charged with largely administrative roles are spending tens of millions of taxpayer dollars to purchase SWAT and military-style equipment. Since FY uh, fiscal year 2006, 44 traditionally administrative agencies have spent over $71 million on items like body armor, riot helmets and shields, cannon launchers, and police firearms and ammunition, according to federal spending data from watchdog group OpenTheBooks.com. This comes in addition to the $330 million spent on such equipment that in that period by traditional law enforcement agencies like the FBI, Secret Service, and DEA. Some examples of the purchases include nearly $2 million spent by the Department of Veteran Affairs on riot helmets, defender shields, body armor, a Milo return fire cannon system, armored mobile shields, Kevlar blankets, tactical gear, and equipment for crowd control. Yeah, because, you know, those disabled veterans, man, there's some pissed off motherfuckers, and, you know, I mean, let them get, all get in their wheelchairs and on their artificial limbs and and they're going to riot. <laughs> Over $300,000 spent by the Food and Drug Administration on ballistic vests and carriers in fiscal 2014. Well, they at least might need it. Yeah, the, va- the vapors might be coming <laughs> after them. So, yeah. yeah. Over $200,000 on body armor spent by the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh, well, after the Flint fiasco. During the Obama administration years versus just $30,000 in the three previous fiscal years. More than $28,000 by the Smithsonian Institute. The fucking Smithsonian? 
on body armor for zoo police and security officers in fiscal 2012. Zoo police? <laughs> but the animals are armed? What the hell? <laughs> i tell you about when we took Bernie to the Smithsonian. God, no. Go so, we went a couple summers ago. We decided we were, Paul and I were going to get in the car, take the kid, and we're just going to go. And we went down through Lexington, Kentucky, and we went to Nashville, and then we went to Atlanta, and, you know, we stopped by in Chattanooga, and we had some really good Greek food, and, and then we came back up the East Coast, okay? Right. We decided on our way back through South Carolina, North Carolina border is renowned for um, your ability to purchase fireworks. So, you know, I mean, it's coming up on the 4th of July. You you must stop and get right. fireworks, right? Mm-hmm. It's just what you do because they're, they're cheap and they're legal. So my husband and my son did get a little excessive in, in the fireworks store. Um, we had a really good time shopping. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> in a shoe store with an unlimited credit card. Well, so on the way back up through, we think, you know what? We're really going to make this trip educational for the kid. We've taken him to the Olympic Park in Atlanta, Georgia. And we might as well stop at the Smithsonian. Here's something people don't understand. Well, people that live in Podunk, USA, um, like I do. That you when when you go into a city like Washington D.C. and where the Smithsonian is, most of the parking is a paid and right. underground. Mm-hmm. So we go. Paul's following the little GPS, and we're going to go to the parking where it says there's parking. Da 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 da. We pull up, and Paul goes to church there, and he's like, "Whoa, what the fuck is that? I don't think we're in the right place." Because here's a guy with an M16 and a German Shepherd, and there's another guy with an M16 standing next to this guard gate. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so that, it's not Paul Blatt Mall Cop territory. No, these guys had 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 dogs and and automatic weapons. Um, so. Nice. That makes me not want to visit our nation's capital at all, but go ahead. Yeah, but well, well, what the fuck is this? And so we pull up and, and well, Paul stopped, right? And the guy's like waiting forward. And he's like, well, fuck, now I got to pull up. You know, what are you going to do? So right. he goes up there and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, this is in the wrong place. I'm just looking for parking for the Smithsonian. And the guy goes, well, this is it. He's like, um, well, he says, we're going to have to take the bomb dog around your vehicle. He says, I'm going to need to open the bag. <laughs> and Paul's like, um, okay. And the, the one guy's already at the back of Arcadia, right? And he's like pushing the button. He's like, this one open, this one open. And Paul goes, well, that's, you know, that's because the car's in drive and whatever. And Paul's looking at me and I'm looking at him. Paul, the other guy turns and they both walk towards the back and Paul looks at me and he goes, I'm going to fucking jail. <laughs> There was like 10 pounds of black powder in the back of my car. Okay. <laughs> Literally hundreds of dollars at the fireworks store. Hundreds of... <laughs> no. So did they treat you like a long lost friend? 
I don't know what to tell you. They walked around the car and they said, okay, you're good. Go on in. And as we're pulled down in the building, Paul looks at me and he goes, and you think TSA is fucking useless. <laughs> <laughs> so, you go, first, he's under the Ronald Reagan building or something. <laughs> and I'm, we get out of the car. So, I'm sorry, my husband and I are looking at each other like, what the fuck? I have a question. Do you think you would have gotten in with that much fertilizer in your car? Oh, I don't know, Jan, but this gets worse. Okay. <laughs> it can't get worse. Yes, it does. It gets fucking worse. We almost tackled my kid. What? So we go in the Smithsonian, right? And we go in the building that's got, it's the, the, war, the war museum. Um, it's got, and, and the Betsy Ross flag is there, which, by the way, is fucking huge. Right. So, you know, I mean, I understand that this little place she lived in was itty-bitty tiny what the ever. This flag is freaking huge. Huge. Right. Okay, but anyway. So, we go in the gift shop outside of one of the one of the war displays, right? Mm-hmm. And Paul and Bernie are looking at these pens, and these pens are cute. They're like, you know, like stacked up shell cases. Okay. So Bernie wanted one of these pens. And we're like, well, yeah, go ahead and get the pen. You know what I mean? What the hell? You know, it was like, I don't know. It was, I don't think it was like $10. Right. So we get the pen, and we go walk, and we're finally, we're like, okay, that's about enough of this. So we walk outside, we walk outside, and it was in the afternoon, and it evidently had rained while we are in there. And I'm here to tell you that outside of Washington, outside of the Smithsonian, after it rains in June, smells like piss. So it's like it's being off. in New York. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely awful. It's awful. So let's say we go to walk it back into the building that we exited where we parked. Mm-hmm. So we go to go back into the building, and there is a metal detector you have to go through. Well, you and I both know I can't go through a metal detector. Right. So, I mean, I have a purse. My purse, I could hide a, a dead, vertically challenged person. My, my purse is not little, okay? It's not. Anybody that's ever seen me in person can tell you it's not. Um, okay. Well, so I've got out my license. I've got out my medical I- implant ID card, you know. Mm-hmm. Some, some point, Jan, some point in my life, someone is actually going to look at my medical implantation card. Because sure they are. to this day, they have not. They have not. Anywhere. Um, so, I'm okay, and I can't go through it. The guy's okay, okay, just walk around. Never bothered to ask me to open up this gigundous fucking bag that I have. Never anything, right? Right. So, Bernie goes walking through the thing, and he's walking off, and Paul goes to go through it. And Paul backs up and takes shit out of his pocket, and he goes back through it again, and, and, and he beeps, and it's okay, oh, 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 yep, you have on a metal belt buckle. And at this point, the guy on the other end of the thing is going, Sir! Sir! I need you to stop, sir! Sir! I need you to stop right there! You know, and Bernie's looking around like, who the fuck's he yelling at, right? And mm-hmm. you know, Bernie, Bernie's not seeing a sir. I'm not seeing a sir. Paul's not seeing a sir. There's only right. the three of us. Right. The guy goes and he grabs a hold of Bernie. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell are you doing? I need I need you to empty your pockets right now. You need to empty your pockets. What the fuck is this? It was that 
fucking pen. You bought from the Smithsonian. Nice. So, we could drive four stories under the Ronald Reagan building or whatever. It was named after some fucking president. With all of this gunpowder <laughs> that nobody noticed, including the bomb sniffing dog. But the kid, who was 14 years old at the time, is damn near tackled to the ground over a fucking pen bought in the at the Smithsonian Museum. Okay, so now we know why they have to have body armor so that irate mothers don't beat them to death. (laughs) (laughs) They need body armor so when somebody blows up one of these stupid buildings. Not that I'm wishing that at all. I'm not. I'm not. I'm I'm, Jesus Christ. Nobody ever had to wear body armor, but... Yeah, me too. Okay, um... Okay, spending watchdogs. Sorry, we're back. Um, Spending watchdogs say these examples highlighted in an upcoming oversight report by OpenTheBooks.com titled Arming of Federal Agencies point to a trend of duplicitous federal law enforcement agencies run amok. Uh, Duplicitous, sorry. Spending $71.1 million on body armor outside of traditional law enforcement agencies rages raises troubling questions. It's no surprise Gallup found that nearly 50% of Americans believe the federal government is a threat to their liberty, said Adam Andrzejewski, founder of Open the Books and author of the Oversight Report. Living in D.C., one gets a sense of the growing police power of the federal government when you increasingly see car official cars emblazoned with fill-in-the-blank agency police service. For obscure bureaucracies you've hardly ever even heard of, says Chris Edwards, a budget analyst at the Cato Institute. For spending tens of millions of dollars on body armor and other protective gear for the duplicative law police forces, the VA, EPA, and FDA, and 41 other administrative agencies win this week's Golden Hammer, a weekly distinction awarded by the Washington Times highlighting examples of wasteful federal spending. When agencies like the Bureau of Public Debt and the Small Business Administration are spending... Why is the Small Business Administration spending money on body armor and bulletproof vests? Um, It is an indicator of bloat in those agencies' budgets and the wasteful incentive to spend every dime before the fiscal year end, Mr. Edwards said. Federal agencies employ roughly 12,000 full-time officers authorized to carry guns and make arrests, according to a June 2012 report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Administrative agencies with special police like the EPA, IRS, and NOAA? NOAA? Aren't they the weather people? They are. What do you gotta do? Shoot snows? She could... (laughs) You did... Snows invading. Must have an armed response. (laughs) argue that their officers, just like other law enforcement officers, always face the potential for physical confrontation and therefore must be armed and ready. Other agencies are required by Congress to have their own officers. Under the law 38 U.S.C. 902, VA police officers are appointed and trained to enforce federal law within the department's jurisdiction. Because they are in every VA medical center and the properties are federally owned, the officers are the first responders to active threat incidents civil disturbances or similar incidents, a spokeswoman for the VA said in a statement to the Washington Times. Facilities do receive excellent support from local police agencies, but our guys will always be first to respond. 
In a statement to the Times, a spokeswoman for the FDA said the agency's Office of Criminal Investigations, they have their own FBI, uh, employs special agents that have the ability and authority to obtain and execute arrest and search warrants, carry firearms, and gather evidence to enforce U.S. criminal law on matters relating to the FDA. OCI provides its special agents with numerous resources to support investigations. OCI special agents are dedicated to protecting the health and welfare of the public by investigating criminal allegations falling within the jurisdiction of the FDA, the woman said. So when you find out that your triple stacker really has some harmful shit in it, the FDA is going to go beat some ass over it. Some agencies, like the EPA, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management have come under fire in recent years for conducting raid-like operations with heavily armed agents. In 2013, armed EPA officers raided the town of Chicken, Alaska. (laughs) The agency said the raid was conducted to look for possible violations of the Clean Water Act. Too bad they didn't raid Flint fucking Michigan. The EPA did not respond to a request for comment. In some cases, Congress might require an agency to install its own police force when federal authorities won't take on the job. According to Paul Larkin, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a former special agent in charge with the EPA, um, the EPA criminal enforcement program, the FBI was asked to take on the role of environmental law enforcement in 1986, but the Bureau turned down the job, citing newly added responsibilities in the war on drugs. He added that the administrative agencies also have an incentive to create their own police forces because it provides them an authority to bring criminal charges against someone that will not cooperate in a civil settlement or on a special interest-related matter like environmental violations. We have too many federal agencies with law enforcement authorities. If you're going to give someone law enforcement authorities, there are certain expenses that may come with it. The problem is we have given law enforcement authority to far too many agencies, Mr. Larkin said. He argued that administrative federal agencies should not handle their own criminal investigations, but should transfer those probes to the U.S. Marshal Service. That would make sense. Several reports from the Government Accountability Office have highlighted concerns with the growing number of law enforcement officers at federal agencies over the years. In 1996, 32 agencies employed 4,262 law enforcement personnel, an increase of over 70% since 1987, according to a GAO report. The 2006 GAO report showed there were 25,000 sworn officers in smaller government agencies, excluding departments commonly associated with crime fighting, and that number has continued to balloon despite growing criticism. It's unfortunate that problems like this don't get addressed until there's been a tragedy that occurs. Sometime there's going to be the use of force by someone, and that agency is not going to support the agent, Mr. Larkin said. The difference is the FBI will stand by its agency its agents, the DEA will, the Marshal Service will. I had no belief the EPA would stand by its agents. Something like that is going to happen, and only then will the problem get addressed. Yeah. They're not going to listen to common sense like the U.S. Marshal Service should be doing it. <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that won't happen. Yeah. I know what has to happen, though. I figured... They need okay. Weapons for cloud seeding, and they need body armor, so they'll be okay. So they need body armor for when they're coming up against Thor with his hammer. I mean, come on, hail! It's for it's for hail. Flying balls and frozen water doesn't work. 
Ah, well, you know, you mentioned that, but some heavily armed marines found out <laughs> body armour doesn't work too well um, in Norway not in a, recently. Not in a snowstorm, no. <laughs> I, I sent Jan a story about some soldiers getting... Um, oh, they got their ass whipped ass by handed kids. to them and, by kids, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're big, strong, tough marines, and these like little six- and seven-year-old kids whip their asses snowballs in Norway. You don't fuck with little kids in Norway. You don't throw snowballs at them. They will beat you to death. And your body armor will not help you. That was a funny story. It was funny. It, it wasn't bad. It was pretty funny. Um, in fact, can you, actually, Vera, can you dig that up? Yeah, I'll just no, back stick it in the, the chat. chat. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Oh, okay, right. Um, for more light, fun, and comic relief, police chiefs accuse Ohio sheriff of posing as a DEA rep to steal drugs from their departments. Yeah, but this is funny, though. I'm sorry, this is funny. <laughs> a group of Ohio police report chiefs claim that a local sheriff stole their department's stole drugs from their departments, falsely claiming that he was collecting the illegal substances for disposal by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. The police chief also claimed that the state officials stalled an investigation into the matter for political reasons. According to the Free Thought Project, Sandusky County Sheriff Kyle Obermeyer met with Police Chief Mark Kaufman at Bellevue Police Department in April of 2015. Obermeyer said he was collecting drugs for disposal by the DEA. Kaufman was new to his job at the time. He told the Sandusky Register that, unbeknownst to him, Overmeyer had visited the department on two earlier occasions to collect the DEA drug boxes. Well, I didn't realize he had been there two other times, Kaufman said, and my detective didn't think anything of it. It was the sheriff picking up these things. He told us, he told me personally, he had an agreement with the DEA, and he just kept it at whatever facility he had, and he said they come and pick it up a couple times a year. Then... Coffin compared notes with other police chiefs in the region and found that they'd had similar experiences. So he contacted the DEA. When I talked to the DEA the next day, I learned that the sheriff, in fact, did not have an agreement with them. And secondly, they told me that they had discontinued pickups a couple years ago and they were starting again, he said. The group of police chiefs then contacted the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation and State Attorney General Mike DeWine. They say they were assured by the BCI that an investigation into Overmeyer was ongoing. However, DeWine alleges that no such contact occurred and he knew nothing about accusations against Overmeyer at the time, chiefs suggest. The group of police chiefs have repeatedly prodded BCI to pursue a case against Overmeyer to no avail. The investigation allegedly relaunches, then the group hears nothing, says Gibsonburg, Gibsonburg Police Chief Paul Whitaker. BCI has been given ample time and opportunity, more chances to conduct an investigation than we ever get in cases, Whitaker said. And then we start to get word that possibly the police chiefs are assisting in some way in covering up for Sheriff Overmeyer, which is bullshit. Last Friday, the group, Fremont Police Chief James White, Bellevue Police Chief Mark Kaufman, Gibson Police Chief Paul Whitaker, Green Springs Police Chief Charlie Horn, Clyde Police Chief Bruce Gower and Woodville Police Chief Roy Whitehead released a statement revealing their accusations against Overmeyer. The case is currently ongoing. And if you want to watch video of that, 
here's the story. So, yay. It is rather important they find out what he's done with all those drugs. Yeah. You'd think. Yeah. yeah I mean... Somebody called at some point. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Oh, don't... I mean, I live in a little itty-bitty fucking town, okay? Mm-hmm. But everybody here knows that our chief of police works on a drug task force. Everybody in this town knows he works for them. I would have expected these police chiefs to have known whether the sheriff was working. Uh, I don't know. I guess maybe not. I just, how the fuck did they not know this? I don't know. I, I guess... Well, didn't we say incompetence, you know, if you work for the government, you can't be fired for being a moron? Yeah. We did. We first had our suspicions about the sheriff when he rolled up in a big black SUV with 18-inch <laughs> hubs. And <laughs> it, it's, it goes from the insane to the absolutely ridiculous. Um, so we'll get to the last two stories and then we'll all go start drinking. Um, police say they can read BlackBerry PGP encrypted email. Police in two countries have claimed they can read encrypted data from BlackBerry devices that are being marketed as having military grade security. The story broke when Dutch news website Nasadia News Crime Press published the documents from Netherlands Forensics Institute, a Dutch law enforcement agency, stating that police were able to access deleted messages and read encrypted emails on so-called BlackBerry PGP devices. A representative from NFI confirmed that we are capable of obtaining, obtaining encrypted data from BlackBerry PGP devices, according to a report from Vice Motherboard. On Tuesday, Motherboard further reported on a similar result by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, PGP stands for Pretty Good Privacy, a program for encrypting and authenticating data that is often used to encrypt email. PGP BlackBerry devices, however, are not sold by BlackBerry, but by resellers like Ghost PGP, which customizes BlackBerry devices with PGP encryption. Ghost PGP says on its website that it has been offering military-grade encryption solutions on the BlackBerry device for more than 15 years without a single breach in security. And a company spokesperson told Motherboard that its services are not affected and had not been compromised. Nevertheless, FGI and RCMP say they have been able to decrypt messages from PGP BlackBerries, although they won't exactly say how. Motherboard reported that NFI might have used a method known as chip-off by extracting memory chips from the device and pulling the data off them to attack it offline without any limits on how many password guesses are allowed or how quickly those guesses can be tried. Whatever technique the Dutch police used, it required a physical address to the device, physical access to the device, device, according to Motherboard, and it's not 100% effective. NFI had only been able to decrypt 279 out of 325 encrypted emails in its criminal case described by the Dutch crime news website. In a statement to the BBC, BlackBerry said it could not comment without knowing any details about the device or the nature of the communications that are said to have been decrypted. BlackBerry backdoors. 
These revelations come at a time when some governments are considering laws to require encryption backdoors in order to fight crime and terrorism. Perhaps ironically, the Netherlands has come out against backdoors with a new policy that says the government will not seek restrictions on the development or use of encryption within the country. For BlackBerry, this story raises uncomfortable questions for the company, such as, are law enforcement agencies exploiting zero-day security vulnerability? Alternatively, is there an intentional backdoor that law enforcement has discovered? BlackBerry has faced questions before about whether it was providing backdoors for intelligence and law enforcement agencies, including reports that UK intelligence agency GCHQ had compromised BlackBerry devices to spy on world leaders at the G20 summit in 2009. Unlike stalwart backdoor opponents Apple and Google, BlackBerry has taken a more conciliatory tone when talking about the government access and encryption. Last month, BlackBerry CEO John Chen said in a provocative blog post that our privacy commitment does not extend to criminals and indicated that it was a company's duty within legal and ethical boundaries to help law enforcement. Also, last month, BlackBerry announced it would be pulling its operations out of Pakistan because the government of that country had ordered BlackBerrys to shut down unless it's provided access to BES servers. However, BlackBerry announced on 31 December 2015 that it had reached an agreement with Pakistan to remain in the country after Pakistan accepted BlackBerry's position. BlackBerry says its position on backdoors has always been no backdoors, although it's reaffirmed that position many times. The questions about BlackBerry's backdoor policy haven't gone away. I have a question. Sure. Who's still using goddamn BlackBerrys? government idiots they're not that good yeah well everybody thinks they can beat the decryption monster you can't no. somebody wants to know what you're doing or saying you know it's it just needs the right pivot point you know what i mean it just needs that right bit of mathematical computation to break it and if it doesn't need that it just needs access to the device physically so yeah. uh, you know but BlackBerry's one of the companies that's been, for years, bounced from data breach problem to data breach problem. So, yeah, I mean... Exactly. No, they're not that great. No. Actually, I think I'm going to tell you what I think is, is attractive about the BlackBerry is the full QWERTY keyboard. It's not that tap-on-your-phone keyboard. I kind of like a QWERTY keyboard. I like that. I, I miss that about my new phone. I can plug a phone uh, keyboard into my phone. So yeah, yeah. I know oh, you have a wonderful phone. I don't. So <laughs> and I just really, really up uh, like upgraded to a smartphone. So oh, um, well, you know, if it's got a micro USB port, if it supports OTG, you can mm -hmm. plug a keyboard into it. Yeah, I'm actually the the biggest reason I upgraded to a a semi. Well, a smarter device than what I had was because I wanted to use the key charging pad. Yeah. I just wanted to throw my phone down and have it be charged. Yeah. Because I'm lazy like that. In which case, if it's that advanced a phone, it probably you can plug a keyboard into it. Oh, yeah. I just or even a Bluetooth keyboard. Yeah, I just hadn't even thought about it. I don't like pairing <laughs> Bluetooth with anything. I don't like Bluetooth for some reason. Um... Well, you know, if you don't like security, Bluetooth's a very bad idea. Yeah. Uh, I do like security, and I don't like Bluetooth, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and this is the last story, actually, guys. We made it. 
um, cyber activists from 42 countries issue open letter against software backdoors. See, this stuff does nicely tie together at some point. Nearly 200 experts, companies, and advocacy groups urge governments to end efforts to mandate insecure encryption amid surveillance concerns. Amid a sustained push by world governments to undermine secure digital communications, campaigners from more than 42 countries are making a concerted push to defend encryption. An open letter issued on Monday, three days after senior Obama administration officials huddled with Silicon Valley titans to revive a relationship damaged by revelations of mass surveillance, demanded an end to global government efforts to compel the insertion or use of software flaws in encryption protocols called backdoors. Users should have the option to use and companies the options to provide the strongest encryption available, including end-to-end encryption, without fear that governments will compel access to the content, metadata, or encryption keys without due process and respect for human rights, reads the letter signed by 195 experts, companies, and civil society organizations. The letter an initiative of the digital rights group Access Now and posted to securetheinternet.org urges governments not to ban or otherwise limit user access to encryption in any form or otherwise prohibit the implementation or use of encryption by greater type. It rejects government efforts to mandate insecure encryption algorithms, standards, tools, or technologies. The nearly 200 signatories include the secure messaging company Silent Circle, good app, uh, Human Rights Watch, former CIA officials John Kiraku, United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression David Kay, Guardian U.S. columnist Trevor Tim, U.S. security officials, particularly FBI Director James Comrie, have publicly urged Silicon Valley to create a backdoor into encrypted communications that only the government can use. Their arguments have been met with a wave of resistance from technologists, but have received political support after the recent terror attacks in Paris and San Bernardino, although it remains unclear whether the attackers use strong encryption tools. Technologists have responded that security flaws are user-neutral and capable of distinguishing between an FBI agent seeking to stop a terrorist attack and the hacker looking to steal or deface personal data. They warn that weakening encryption protocols for surveillance will jeopardize cybersecurity a compelling priority during a rising tide of online attacks, some state-sponsored. Any backdoor is a backdoor for everyone, Apple's Tim Cook has stated. Apple representatives attended Friday's meeting with senior U.S. officials. Monday's letter was released in a dozen countries, many of which have passed or are considering changes to their laws that activists warn permit deeper digital surveillance, often undercover or bolstering cybersecurity. A highly controversial surveillance measure long stalled in Congress is the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, which passed last month after advocates included it within a must-pass spending bill. Encryption anonymity and the security concepts behind them provide the privacy and security necessary for the exercise of the right of freedom of expression in the digital age, Kaye, the UN Freedom of Expression Chief, said in a statement accompanying the release's letter. Access Now's policy manager, Amy Stepanovich, said that since governments from China to the United Kingdom were united in threatening encryption, a global response was similarly warranted. Conversations about security and surveillance have taken place in the shadows for too long, Stepanovich said. From the secret negotiations of the so-called cybersecurity bill in order to push it through last December, to meetings just last week between top officials in government and the private sector, we need to start shining light on the ways of our human rights are being threatened. 
SecureTheInternet.org draws clear lines in the sand. We won't stand for laws or policies that threaten our security. So there was that. Yes, not often I can agree with something Tim Cook says. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, you know, it's just kind of nice. I don't... I I liked it. Yeah. I don't know. That was the, the... the better news of the week. So, yeah. Let's hope in the next week or two that death takes a holiday. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Final thoughts, anybody? Okay. No I final thoughts. This is my shit. And, and by the way, you two missed me. I made you laugh. You so- did. We did miss you. We missed you a lot. I said last week I missed you. That was the last thing I said on my show. It's been rough. It's been rough. <laughs> I really thought Christmas last year went out wonderfully. This year started. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It, uh... Yeah. What, what more can we say about that, really? It's a shitty start to the year. Even though it was a lot of really disturbing material, I I really missed. I missed having laughs. I missed getting my news all in one horrible dose, so that when I got done, I could go and start slamming back shots. (laughs) (laughs) See, no, I made you laugh. Full circle. I love you, Miss Jeannie. I'm glad you're back. I've missed you. Various missed you. We've both missed you. Definitely. The show wasn't the same without you. Uh, and I guess I'm I'm glad. And I guess that's what I'm I'm guessing that's gonna be it for this week. Um Edwards. Edwards. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Okay, guys, we're all going to leave and go start doing shots now to try and recover from all the good news. Um, But I recommend if you're not a shots person, Fireball Whiskey and Cream Soda. It's a delicious combination. It tastes like a cinnamon roll. Have a good night. We'll see you next week.